Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. We're here every week with a panel of guests from the world of business and beyond to take a look at the numbers that make up the news. This week, once again, our panel comes to you virtually, but no matter where you are, we'll still be broadcast right across Australia on the community radio network and straight into your own device wherever you are in the world via podcast. Well, wherever you are in Australia or indeed around the world, you're most likely working from home. With the exception of a few essential industries, the majority of Australians are now dusting off the printer, clearing out the spare room and trying to get on with work as normal. Studies have found that working from home cuts commuting times and associated fatigue, transport congestion and environmental impacts. But for an entire economy to work from home, what will happen to our productivity? And more importantly, could this spell the end of the office? Joining the panel to discuss what happens to the Australian economy as we continue to phone it in is our panel of guests. Dr. Robin Johns is a Senior Lecturer in Human Resource Management and Industrial Relations at the University of Technology, Sydney. Catherine O'Regan is the Executive Director of the Sydney Business Chamber and Angela Vithulkas, an Independent Councillor for the City of Sydney and the Deputy Chairperson of the City of Sydney Economic Development and Business Subcommittee. Thank you all for joining. Robin, we're currently in the midst of a workplace revolution and this restructuring is going to last for at least the next six months. To start off our discussion, what happens to an economy when practically its entire labour force is working from home? Yeah, a good question. We're certainly in in completely new territory. You know, previously people have uh, chosen to work from home or there's been a degree of flexibility that allowed people to work from home. But at the moment, we're seeing people forced into having to work for home. And I've never heard so many people say, I just want to go to work. <laughs> now, in 2010, as part of the pitch, the original pitch for the MBN, the Gillard government set a target for teleworketing. Um, and they suggested that the Australian economy could save between $1.4 to $1.9 billion a year if 10% of the workforce teleworked half the time. So why didn't teleworking take off initially? And has the landscape fundamentally changed since then? I don't know necessarily that the landscape's fundamentally changed. Obviously, this has forced everybody into it. And I think a a lot of it comes down to, uh, I guess, trust issues around people working from home. You know, there's almost this thought that people working from home, they're, they're having this great laid back life, uh, not necessarily being overly productive. And yet what researchers often found that it's it's quite the contrary. People that work from home tend to work more, uh, put in a lot longer hours. Uh, but it's really hard for organisations to get there and to develop trust and build workplace relationships and develop cultures when it's all done remotely. But obviously we've got no choice to be doing that at the moment. Um, but certainly one of the things I guess that we're seeing Uh, a lot of workplaces using various applications such as Zoom, is we are allowing, we're still able to get into each other's homes now to be able to see each other. So we are able to virtually meet up, which which is making a difference than, you know, technologies we've had in the past. And given that you've said that this has been forced upon us and it hasn't been a natural progression, so to speak. Do some employees find inviting their colleagues into their home to be somewhat invasive? 
Yeah, I think uh, certainly in the last last week there's been a whole heap of uh, emails doing the rounds with gaffes that people have made, uh, having working from home and allowing people in into their houses through through applications such as Zoom. Uh, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is that, you know, the workplace is a, a good equaliser. So when we all go into work, we, we've got our space that we work, we're provided with, you know, various resources. But because everyone's been thrust into all of a sudden having to work at home, there's some really interesting setups that people have. I think the workplace is, is a great equaliser in the sense that we all turn up to work, we're provided with space and facilities and the resources necessary now, because everyone's being thrust into working at home, people have a variety of different setups. And some people may have had the flexibility of occasionally working from home, so had things reasonably well set up. But for many people, this is the first time. And they just simply haven't got, you know, their needs aren't necessarily being met. So hence the reason people have been racing off to buy desks and chairs and all those types of resources that they need to be able to productively work from home. Is it getting to a point now where people are starting to almost build that image of what they live like to their colleagues? Because as you've said, the workplace is the ultimate equaliser. Everyone is there doing a particular role and your personal lives are very much kept out of the picture. But now that you're being telecast uh, via wherever you happen to be working in your home, is it causing a little bit of an identity crisis with people where they're having to decide how they want their colleagues to view their home life. Yeah, look, I, I guess it's still quite quite early in, in those days. But, um, yeah, I think it's interesting when you hop on those sort of calls how people choose to depict themselves. So certainly one of the things that we have seen in teleworking literature is the discussion about you know, treat if you're working at home like you would any other workday, stick to a routine, you know, get up, get dressed as if you're going to work, you know, work those sort of set hours. Uh, And some people you can certainly see doing that, you know, they're sitting there in front of their computer, they're dressed as if they're going to work, and then you've got other people still laying in bed. So (laughs) I think that makes for very interesting dynamics. Catherine, Zoom video communications shares have soared 107 percent since the start of the year Uh, and now obviously most businesses across the country are starting to realize that this may be one of their only ways of of keeping up business but what models are built for this style of communication and what aren't yeah that's a good question and one of the things that you actually said earlier is productivity and i think that's the key and that's the leveler across whatever model there is in terms of communicating. The um, the idea that face-to-face uh, is the only means to keep the productivity levels high, I think, has sort of fallen by the wayside probably five, six years ago, but we haven't embraced it or haven't been forced to embrace it like we are being um, forced right now. But I do find it really interesting. You know, we've gone from that traditional model, you know, big office, corner office for certain people and that hierarchical one to open plan to now sort of mobile offices. As long as you've got your your laptop, you can do, do anything anywhere. But we didn't actually do it anywhere. We didn't do it in our home environments in the way that I think we're starting to really learn the powers that it can give you to keep 
that engagement, keep the communication going, and above all, keep that productivity going. The last time you featured on the podcast, we actually touched on that exact same concept about anytime, anywhere business models. Um, And as you've just even mentioned, we spoke about the fact that that system does blur the lines between work and life. So with your experience in the corporate sector, what are some of the major pitfalls of packing up the office and taking the business online? Taking a business online, first and foremost, means that you need to have the infrastructure, but you also need to have the people understanding what that is. And I know all of us have actually probably over the last number of weeks being at home, working using different platforms, are trying to work out how to get the most out of them, how you can leverage them, you know, whether it's you know, doing a webinar, whether it's talking across a team. But we, I still think we've got a little bit more work to do to really make it actually something that is sustainable. And it, I think it comes down to one word, which is flexibility. Because as we start to work from home and, you know, even that, that sort of traditional idea of being productive because I'm banging away at my computer, you know, we need to be far more flexible that your work actually involves multiple things. So if I don't see an email from you, it still means that you could have actually had 10 conversations, but I didn't see you have the conversations because I wasn't in the office. So I think our mindset needs to be broadened to really think about that flexibility on how we work, the hours of our work, and be far less what I would call almost compliance focused rather than actually seeing, you know, uh, you know, someone physically doing the work. Do we also lose faith in the institutions that we work for if we're not constantly in contact with them? And does that shift towards home offices make employees feel as though they're almost working for themselves as opposed to a larger company? Uh, i probably jump in there. I, th- I think some of the research that's been done around um, working from home is to do with that, those feelings of isolation and certainly people do tend to feel cut off um, and, you know, they lose those close connections, which then impacts on what I mentioned before, potentially trust and connections. And the big one for organisations is this mutual purpose, you know, that we're all striving, you know, and on the same page to, you know, work in the same direction. So how do you achieve that mutual purpose when people are remote is, is a real challenge. And what are some of the techniques that you can use to make sure that people don't start to feel that isolation from their colleagues and from the sort of greater purpose of the company? I think um, from a manager's point of view, um, doing consistent and scheduled check-ins, so allowing people to, you know, still have those discussions and be able to let them communicate what's important for them and make sure that they're aware of any uh, changes and updates in priorities and expectations. Uh, a little bit of, I guess, almost going back to school days, a bit of show and tell, allowing allowing people to get there and, um, you know, voice, you know, what's been going on in, in, in their world to be able to share that. Because particularly when we're, we're so isolated, people, we want that human contact. So adding to what Robin has said there, you know, I think it's a leadership issue and a very different leadership style you know I think in the office you know it can be seen to be you know we're a collaborative kind of leadership but in a a distance where you've got that physical distance that separation it is a little bit more um uh, how do I say it's a bit more not not necessarily you'd be clear with your tasks 
We have to be a bit more directive. So these are the things that need to be done. And, but also set up mechanisms for that collaboration. So if you're the, the CEO or the leader of a team, actually to enable, okay, well, if um, Johnny, they should still be able to talk to, you know, Sarah on those two issues. Now you guys go and collaborate but still come back. So you're still, as a leader, facilitating that collaboration, but you have to do that in a more directive way because you don't get the serendipitous bumping in and therefore I spoke to and therefore I saw or I caught you on the way to get the cup of coffee. So there's a little bit more like a conductor to say, this is the things that we're all trying to focus on. These are the things that you two are going to be responsible to work on and come back to us as a team. Um, So those clear lines of allocation of responsibility need to be there with a little bit more of an underline in this environment. Um, I think also managers need to set some really clear and explicit expectations um, that links around it. And going back to what Catherine said, it, we need to move away from being seen or being thought of sitting at the desk is doing work to where we just focus on outcomes rather than, you know, a set of length of time that we're, we're sat there tied to the desk. Um, and I think, you know, naturally at the moment there's going to be a high degree of anxiety for people and so, you know, having information and allowing people to talk and uh, have their say and, and keeping that personal touch I think is really important for for managers as well, uh, allowing people to, to talk to them and, and let them raise concerns and being aware um, that there is potential support there for them. But I also would pick up the point around you know, the care, uh, we do still need to think about we are humans. You know, we, we have distractions in our life. Some people might be working at home with kids and there might be times where you actually need to tolerate the fact that the child needs some attention. So you need to um, accommodate that so that you can still be product, you know, getting what you need as um, a team member or getting the outcomes that you need as a team member and contributing to the whole but again, there's mechanisms to do that within a far more broad framework that cares about you and your self rather than just the productivity outcomes. Angela, you're in a particularly interesting position to comment on this as both a city of Sydney councillor as well as the leader of the small business party. It's a very interesting crossroads to be at. How dangerous are the next few months going to be for small businesses in Australia? Well, interestingly enough, there's some data available that suggests that only 34% of businesses can actually function in some online capacity. So there are many, many businesses, both large and small, who cannot conduct their business online or remotely. All they can do is manage their bureaucratic red tape. So they will be facing the greatest danger of all. The biggest problem that everyone can see and they are starting to realise is that even our federal government has no real idea on how long it will last and how deeply the interruption and the distress will go. But I would urge everyone to take a breath, no matter what capacity of business they're in, and to understand that it is everybody's best interest to save, help and reopen the economic infrastructure of Australia. It is in everybody's interests. No one is going to get kicked to the curb, but they may not see the solutions up front. 
So are you implying that it, it may, if the government aren't taking the sort of necessary steps to protect small business owners, is the onus now on those business owners themselves to sort of innovate and find ways around the sort of huge reductions in foot traffic um, and a loss of a consumer base and try to find a way to make things work in this sort of brave new world? For many people, it's, it's not going to be possible. It is going to be impossible to replace foot traffic online. If you are dealing with a product or service that requires face-to-face interaction of some kind and you didn't already innovate in that world because for, for many reasons. Number one, your business may never suit it. For instance, restaurants, clubs, pubs, bars, you have to go there to have that experience they're not going to be able to what we call innovate. And it's not because they don't want to, it's just that that business can't do it. So there is there is the uh, genuine issue that some of them cannot innovate because they are what they are. They have to have a different financial approach. Those who can in- innovate, again, that can take time. Yes, you can build a website overnight, sort of, but having a website that can conduct e-commerce on it is a little bit more complicated and it takes money and people may not have that cash flow or the understanding all the time to make those, you know, stuff ups and mistakes that, that can happen when you're trying to do the, the innovation. It's, it sounds easy to tell people, oh, you just need to innovate and pivot and look at your business model. But, you know, these, these people who are suffering an economic crisis they don't have that clear mind to sit down and go, oh, how can I make things all work for me? The reality is they are coping with a, a financial and an emotional upheaval. We should be looking at ways to minimise those impacts so they are still there willing and able to reopen when we come out the other side. It's it's unfair to force people to, to have to put all this energy into so-called innovating and pivoting if those options aren't there, what do you want a hairdresser to do? How, how are they going to be able to help if they are forbidden from seeing their clients? Because there's no part of their business model that suits innovation and pivoting. So, And there are many businesses like that. Do you think that it is more a matter of, as you've kind of described it, hibernation, where things are going to slow down for a little while, but in time, once things get back to normal, that same tried and tested business model is going to return? So I have been in business a long time. I've been in business for 30 years. And if you have been um, in business for an extended length of time, you've already experienced uh, most likely severe ups and downs. Everybody does. This is a tough and particularly intense time. So you need to breathe through this, first of all. You need to understand what you've got to do to protect yourself financially and to stop the bleeding. No no employer wants to see their staff kicked to the curb and suffering any kind of loss. But the government has stepped in very quickly to provide the employees with some cash flow, some immediate cash flow. It's not going to be the same amount as people were earning, but it is still going to keep them going and their head just a little bit above water. From the perspective of the business owner, you need to address your biggest overheads. Wherever you are leaking and bleeding money in those areas, those 
particular areas you need to stem that flow immediately. Reach out to your landlord. Now, I know that some landlords aren't having conversations, but they will when you can't pay the rent. Trust me. So there are lots of bills that need paying. You just need to address the ones that are immediate and contact all those ones where you are having genuine trouble and a little bit paid across the board is something and it's all anyone can ask. This is not the time to throw in the towel because there are mechanisms and there will be mechanisms available to make sure that business can recover in some way. I know it sounds easy to say these words, but I'm going to urge every small business owner to understand because this is not a normal way of doing business and everybody is in the same boat, everybody will work out different ways. You have to protect yourself from extended debt and you have to make sure that you're still here later on. Remember, when you're in an aeroplane and they go through the safety course and they say, in the event of an issue and the masks drop down and they urge parents to make sure you put your mask on before you help your child because you need to be conscious. This is what my advice is to every small business owner out there like me. Put your own mask on, assess the situation, and then sit down and be very real in how you approach this because everybody is in the same boat. So don't rush to destroy your own business just yet. Yes, hibernating is a kind of, you know, it's it's an interesting word that the government's put forward, hibernating now, because what they're asking for is is businesses to almost freeze and protect what they've got to come out on the other side. The International Labour Organization did a study in 2017 across 15 EU countries, and they found that 42% of remote workers surveyed had trouble sleeping, waking up repeatedly in the night, uh, and that was compared to only 29% who always worked in the office. So even if you do try very hard to create an equitable work-life balance at a time like this, is burnout on a grand scale across the Australian labour force a likely result of this? Well, I think, yeah, certainly aspects of burnout. Typically when we we look at burnout, we look at it from various different angles, um, and one of that is around just pure emotional exhaustion and I think the amount of work or the way that we're changing our work and being forced into it all of a sudden for some people it has been quite overwhelming and they're putting in huge hours uh for other people you know maybe you know working from home isn't isn't so bad uh and it won't be as emotionally exhausting but certainly for some I I think we'll we'll see that increase uh and the other aspect for um Burnout is looking at the degree of um, uh, personal accomplishment. So to what extent do we feel like we're able to accomplish what we're doing in our day-to-day work, in our day-to-day lives? And if if people feel that working remotely isn't allowed them to accomplish, then again, that is going to contribute to, to burnout. Companies over the next few months are going to have to start coming to terms with enormous losses and uh, one way that's being floated to get back in the black hopefully would be to sell off commercial office real estate now if this experiment into virtual work pays off could there potentially be 
a fire sale of office space across Sydney over the next year or so? I think one of the things there is that it's almost evident when you go through to the CBDs um, in our major cities, you know, there's far less lights on at night You and you, you really think that, the, you know, there is surplus commercial space, office space as we are working from home. Um, and again, maybe I'll just stress that this is an evolution from our workspaces um, and our openness to work from home before, only it's just simply been accelerated in this current environment. So office space and the utility of those spaces um, in the future, I think, will be questioned that in some, in some degree and have created uh, flexible work spaces. And by that, you know, they build a building not just for a single purpose, but can be quickly converted from commercial to residential or vice versa. And, you know, I think that's definitely what we will see where you get dramatic market shifts in supply and demand that you you definitely need to have that asset being able to maximise its life and utility over a long period of time to manage those peaks and troughs of of change. So I think some of that had already started um, and there will be acceleration of that, I think, in this environment. I think the other thing we can't ignore is, uh, and I agree with everything that Catherine's just said, but we're also making the assumption that uh, working and being at home is a pleasant experience and for not everyone it is. Um, Certainly there are going to be plenty of people challenged by this situation that are in troubled relationships and other personal circumstances. So for some people going to work is a real release Uh, And so being forced to stay at home can cause a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. Where do you see the Australian economy in a year from now? Do you think we would have kicked back to normal after everything calms down? Or do you think the changes that have occurred or that will occur over the next few months are just going to be the standard business models for Australia going forward? I don't think we'll go back to exactly what was um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I know change is sometimes difficult for us all to accept but you know what is normal uh, now may not be normal in 12 months time and the uh, and the other area of real change that I would like to see and I've started to see is you know, as big cities and Sydney in particular, you know, we're not really a 24-hour economy. Uh, But yet in this moment of crisis, we're relaxing some laws, um, you know, and the classic is grocery stores being open 24-7, chemists being open 24-7. You know, we've actually sort of structured our economy rigidly around certain timeframes when if we really want our economy to work well, then let's think about opening up some of the restrictions because it can really drive some outcomes. And that might mean a lot more people are working at night and they might be working at night at home, which means they still want to get out, go out at 10 o'clock at night and get a good meal um, rather than just have a selection of a few takeaways. So, but the, but the shops need to be allowed open and we need to be accepting that that work can happen in those different places at those different times. 
And I would like to see that whilst we're forcing some of those changes now because we're making trade-offs, some of those should stay in place so we have a different economy and different structure to our economy. Yeah, no, I, I think certainly as uh, Catherine said, you know, we very much are creatures of habit and so we've we've allowed things to just sort of continue on and, and because this has come in and it's it's forcing us to to rethink the way that we work. I don't I don't think it we will ever go back to normal. I, I agree with her. I think whatever so called normal was, but yeah, um I, I think this is changing us moving into the future. I don't think things will be the same in twelve months. We will come out on the other side. Not unscathed, definitely not unscathed. We will have wounds that will run deep and scars that will be wide and we will have learnt a very valuable lesson on the buzzword called resilience and our preparation for these things. But rainy days come a lot for small businesses and we are resilient. We're tougher than we look on the outside. Well, there you go. You've heard it here first. The water cooler is dead. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Catherine O'Regan, Dr. Robin Johns, and Councillor Angela Vidulkas. Think Business Futures is produced with the assistance of the UTS Business School. And make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast app. And don't forget to spread the good word of the show to your friends because they're all at home. I've been your host, Max Tillman. See you again next week.